0: Turn back in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. It would be great if you can see that um, as I'm preaching. Revelation chapter 5 on the Church Bibles, that's page 1237. Um, And let's pray briefly before we start. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that even with your perfect word in our laps, our minds are dark and our hearts are so dull that we will get no benefit from it without your Holy Spirit's help. And so we pray for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, to illumine our minds and to open our eyes to see the wonders of what he has written here, Jesus of the Saviour. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Revelation chapter 5 is a roller coaster ride for our emotions, isn't it? It starts with a man in tears. And yet it ends with what has to be the noisiest gathering it is possible for us to conceive. So, look at verse 13. We're told, John hears every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them singing. Can uh, you get your head around that description? So I know the city of London at the moment is quite quiet at weekends, but even if right now everyone in the city of London stopped what they were doing and sang... And if all the pigeons started cooing and all the dogs and cats started barking and meowing and uh, it would make a huge noise, wouldn't it? And if all of London erupted in praise to God, uh, it would be incredible. And that is what verse 13 is describing, not just London, but the entire animate creation. Countless angels worshipping billions, every one of the billions of humans on this planet uniting in an act of worship. And I think the question that this chapter is asking is who can turn my tears to joy? How can I be part of that chorus? What is it that, are, that accounts for this song and for the tears turning to joy And I'd like to look at the chapter by asking three questions. Uh, Firstly, why is John crying? Secondly, who can help him? And thirdly, why is he the only one who can help him? So firstly, let's think about why is John crying? We need to make sense of John's reaction in verse 4. He says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now, is John being over the top here? See, back in chapter 4, which we haven't read, he's just seen a vision of heaven. He's seen God on the throne and uh, the four living creatures and the 24 elders worshipping God. He's had this great vision, and and yet now he's in tears over this this little detail. Well, uh, this scroll is central to to the chapter. So look at how it's described, verse 1. Um, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now, the the idea of a scroll in the Bible often symbolises God's plans for humanity. You find the same imagery used elsewhere. This scroll is God's blueprints for the world. And the fact that it's written and sealed gives it legal connotations. So this is a kind of a legal document that we've got here. It's a will or a covenant kind of idea. And in this will or covenant, God outlines his plans for the human race. It's clearly jam-packed with information, isn't it? It's written with writing on the inside and on the outside. It's it's as though the information is kind of bursting out. It's tantalizing. Here is a book that tells you the definitive meaning of life. So just think how much that would sell for in Waterstones. But then in verse 2, John hears this loud voice and uh, it asks, who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth can open it or look inside. And as that realisation dawns on John, he is gripped with this sense of panic. And so he weeps and weeps because no one is found worthy to open it. And John emphasises there's no one, doesn't he, in the, in the chapter? Uh, the three parts of heaven, of the universe are scoured, verse 3. Uh, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is found. It's like a search party goes out. And twice we're told that there is no one who's been found. So, so can you imagine the search party going out? They, they go out to heaven and they explore heaven. Is there anyone in heaven? Are there any of the angels who can can open this scroll for us? Let's go and ask Gabriel, the archangel who has so much power we we couldn't uh, cope with seeing him. No, he cannot open it. Okay, well, let's go and scour earth. Let's go and ask uh, people who are alive on earth at the moment if there's anyone who can open the scroll. Let's go and ask Stephen Hawking. Uh, Let's go and ask... Um, let's wander around the city of London and go and ask that the people who um, have the power and the money, is there anyone here who can open this scroll for us? Let's go and ask celebrities, let's go and ask the, the Hollywood actors and actresses, or maybe there's someone in the UN, surely there's, there's someone on earth who can open this scroll, who can tell us what life is really about but no one and then those under the earth well okay let's let's ask the devil let's ask the, the, the dark side or let's go and ask the dead let's ask King David or Moses let's go and ask other religious leaders can Buddha or Muhammad Guru Nanak can Karl Marx or Freud or Darwin is, is there anyone anywhere who can help us tell us why we're here what we're made for and how we can achieve it and the answer is no one knows see a millionaire might die and leave all his inheritance to you in a will but if they can't find the will or if the writing is illegible on that will you will not get a penny that's the situation John is describing here so so let that sink in for a moment that's the reality of your condition. All the goals, all the glories for which you were created lie inaccessible and unrealizable. Those seven seals cannot be broken. There is no new heavens and new earth. No future inheritance, no justice. Nothing but misery and death. Yes, maybe there is this God up on the throne in chapter 4, but he's got nothing to do with us. So can you understand now why John is crying? Can't you identify with him? I don't know when you last shed tears. Do you want to try and think what, what was it about? And wasn't it because something was wrong? That's what tears are saying, isn't it? Tears are saying this isn't how it should be. I was listening on the radio the other week, uh, this report of a child who died because the mother called the NHS helpline and they got the advice didn't pick up on the symptoms and the, the, the child died. And I heard the, the mother report on the radio just how that happened. And it's, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? And you think that isn't the plan. It's not how it should be. <laughs> you see, why is this, seal, this scroll sealed? Uh, it's not that God is mean and he enjoys watching his creatures weep. No, the destiny of the human race uh, was ruined and the scroll sealed when Adam sinned and brought the human race crashing down with him. The scroll is sealed as a result of sin and those seals are like the cherubim in the Garden of Eden who guard the way to the Tree of Life. And so uh, that's the first thing to see. This, this unreadable scroll is, is a haunting image. And that is exactly your situation here this morning. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, you are living in verse 4. And you can put a brave face on it, and you can smile and tell some jokes and distract yourself, but ultimately, according to Scripture, it will always, always end in tears. Why is John crying? Because he cannot experience the very thing he was made for. Secondly, uh, who can help him? Who can help him? Well, the answer, I hope, uh, isn't too much of a surprise, uh, and it's very easy to remember. It's Jesus. Jesus Christ is the one who can help John. Verse 5, one of the elders uh, said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, there's so much imagery and description in this chapter that it's very easy to miss how very simple it is. What turns John's tears into joy? What is it that unleashes this incredible scene of praise at the end? It is very simply what Jesus does in verse 7. We're told he came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. That's it. That's that's all that, that happens in the scene. That's all the action. Jesus does that. There's this sealed scroll. Everyone is sad. Jesus receives this scroll and the universe bursts out in praise now that action is is really this is an enthronement scene jesus is being enthroned here it's um, a similar scene to daniel chapter 7 where a figure um, like a son of man approaches the ancient of days uh, and uh, and the idea is uh, he is given a kingdom in daniel 7 and so the idea here is that now God's plans for humanity lie in the hands of a man. Now, all of God's promises and plans and goals for the world lie in the the, the ten fingers of Jesus Christ. And so the contents of this will can now come into effect. All the treasures of God for humanity can now be divvied up and shared out by this man. I wonder what you think the greatest moment in human history uh, is. Uh, there are quite a few contenders, aren't there? I suppose we could very obviously go for a creation out of nothing. Uh, that is quite a moment. It's the, the beginning of the concept of a moment. God calls everything into existence that was not Uh, Or we could say it's the moment when the eternal Son of God was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, where he, while being who he always was, became that which which he was not. A holy moment in human history. We could say the cry on the cross. It is finished Uh, when propitiation has been made. God's wrath has been satisfied for sin. We could go to the empty tomb with the woman and in the early light finding uh, that he is not there he is risen. But I'd be very tempted to say the greatest moment in all of world history is verse 7. This is the moment when Jesus moves from a state of humiliation to exaltation. It's all wrapped up with the resurrection and, and the resurrection and ascension but Uh, This is the moment when Jesus accesses and receives and inherits all that God has designed the human race to be. Uh, This is the moment that the universe bursts out in praise. You see, we're not watching merely someone else's enthronement here. There is a sense in which, Christian, you are watching your enthronement Uh, If you think back to uh, the moon landings, if you were alive, or if not, we know the story, don't we? In 1969, Neil Armstrong uh, steps on the moon, and he has his uh, famous quote, this is one small step for man, a giant leap for mankind. And the point was, it wasn't just Neil Armstrong taking a step that day, that the human race was stepping with him. Well, how much more here? As Jesus receives this scroll, he receives it for you. The new heavens and the new earth become your possession. Now, for me to tell you this morning that uh, Jesus um, is the only one who can help you doesn't come as a big surprise, I guess. So I'm a preacher. Uh, That's our job. We've got to tell you that. But, But please don't be fooled by the simplicity of it. Um, a lot of churches uh, like to call themselves or think of themselves as Christ-centred churches. Our, our church in New York had that as one of its straplines. Um, but it's very easy for that to be a, just a cliché. It's amazing how much Christless preaching Christians will put up with. If you explore ha- how you look at your life, can't it be scarily Christless at times? Jesus Christ can be irrelevant to, to what makes me happy um, on a, a Monday morning or a Friday night. How priceless our prayers can be and our worship of God can be. It, it's so much easier, isn't it, to get excited by a new book or a new gadget or something than by Jesus Christ. And, and doesn't it suggest that, that we, we have lots still to learn here? Uh, Jesus Christ, only Jesus Christ can help me. Someone said, a a sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir, then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. If you think about it, it's actually quite cruel, isn't it? So if I uh, were to preach about humility or self-control or guidance or how to receive the Holy Spirit without showing how Christ has acquired these things for us by taking this scroll, it's like me telling you about vast sums of money that you can't get your hands on. Christless sermons are cruel. It's very often, uh, people I find in church well, they'll say, oh, great, thank you, that was a really practical sermon. I really need a practical sermon. And often I feel like saying, no, no, it's not what you need at all. The last thing we need is practical sermons. It's not its not what we need. To preach sermons in with no Christ is to dangle carrots in front of us that we can't get. The only way for you to get your con- your hands on the contents of this scroll is by getting your hands on Jesus Christ. There is not a penny of God's grace to be found anywhere other than in Jesus Christ. So uh, you may come along to church regularly this morning and you can uh, take part and and get to know people. It's quite possible to learn the lingo, isn't it? And to learn the kind of right language that Christians use. If you don't have Jesus Christ this morning, you have nothing. So have a look back at him, verse 5 where two titles are attributed to him. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, which is a picture taken from Genesis 49, and he's the root of David, which is a picture taken from Isaiah chapter 11. Both images reflect his royalty, that they're communicating his kingly nature and status. So a lion, very obviously, is king of the beasts. And if you carry on, verse 6... Uh, We're told that he's got seven horns um, and seven, um, or seven horns is is a a picture of strength, uh, of power. Uh, And he's got seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He's got limitless stores of the Holy Spirit to give you. And you see how this imagery exactly matches John's tears. John's been crying at his powerlessness. And that is what all tears are about, aren't they? That being powerless. Uh, we can't fix the relationship. Uh, the police can't find the missing girl. The paramedics can't get the heart to start again. The sinner can't change his ways, the doctors can't stop the disease, we're powerless. But in our tears, we are pointed to the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, this powerful figure. And we've been told to look at him, look at this lion, look at his strength, which is all at your disposal. What you cannot do, he can do. He heals broken relationships. He fixes things that we are incapable of fixing. He can change you on the inside where you feel powerless. He can provide forgiveness for you and he can raise your dead dying body. So I wonder, is there a sin in your life where you doubt you will ever really see change? Are there certain situations that you look at and you just feel it is hopeless? Or or maybe you're here and you just wonder, what is the whole point of life? Well, we're being told, Christ has this scroll. Go to him for the answers. And maybe you've not done that before. Uh, Maybe you've uh, never done that. And up until now, Jesus has just been a distant historical figure. Well... Uh, The good news this morning that brings us here um, is that Jesus Christ will receive you, and I'd encourage you and exhort you to go to him and cry out to him uh, for his help. Uh, Without him, you've got nothing. With him, you've got everything. But thirdly, uh, why is he the only one who can help John? So we've seen why John's crying, who, who alone can help him? But thirdly, let's think about why he is the only one. Who can help John? See, we've been told that he can, but unless we see why, uh, we'll miss uh, the glory of this scene. So for this, look back at verse 5 and 6. John is told to look for the lion of the tribe of Judah, um, who has triumphed. Now, uh, that word triumph is a very important word in the book of Revelation. It's used in, in the seven letters that, that begin the book. And that word triumph points out that verse seven isn't automatic. It's not as though simply because Jesus is the eternal son of God, that's why he's receiving this scroll. Uh, He's not simply receiving what's always been his. No, he's had to triumph. He's had to do something. He's had to conquer and accomplish a work, expending energy and battling in order to obtain it. And then in verse 6, there's a a, a shock. I think it's supposed to pull us up short. Can you see? John is told to look for a lion. And in verse 6, we're told then i saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain uh, so he's supposed to see a victorious lion but instead he sees a mortally wounded lamb and you can imagine can't you john probably had to, to sort of do a double take and, and rub his eyes again and check he was really seeing what he was seeing no that's that's definitely not a lion it's a lamb now we know the lamb isn't dead don't we because he's standing And dead lambs don't stand, so so it's a a deliberately um, this is this is the resurrected Jesus, but the imagery is deliberately ironic. And this imagery of the lamb slain runs through the rest of the chapter, and it comes out in each of the three songs. And we're meant to slow down and think about this: the lion is the lamb, and it's actually the songs that help us uh, put this together. Uh, Why is Jesus the only one worthy to take the scroll? We'll look at verse 9. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. In verse 12, it's as the lamb who was slain that he's worthy to receive power and wealth, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. Do you see how the songs put it together? It is because he is the lamb slain, that he is this victorious lion. It is because Jesus went obediently to the cross, that he's now worthy and able to unlock the seals and open the scrolls for us. His death looses the seals. And the lamb imagery is deliberately um, there to tell us that his death is sacrificial. It's got a whole Old Testament background At the Exodus, lambs were sacrificed. In the book of Isaiah, the suffering servant is depicted as a lamb. Um, And um, and so it's sacrificial um, imagery. Uh, And there is ransoming imagery. The language of verse 9 is that of ransom. You you purchased men for God. It is Jesus' death that gives him the credentials and allows him to be the one depicted here as this lion. Only he who deals with our sin can help us. That's why Jesus is the only one who can help John, Because Jesus is the only one who paid for sins, for John's sins, and died in his place. And the reason that no one else in heaven or on earth or under the earth can help any of us this morning is because no one else in heaven or on earth or under the earth has paid for sin. No one else has died for you that you might be saved. No celebrity has done that. No guru or or author has done that. Every other religious leader said things... Jesus Christ has done something, paid something. Everyone else talks. Jesus has acted. And that is why you can trust him. Uh, If you go to Christ this morning, uh, you can uh, come to him uh, knowing your sins have been paid for and all the treasures of this scroll are yours by right. Do not underestimate the redemptive power ...of Christ's blood. It really has taken the nastiest of sinners. Men who were abusive and lawless. Men who hated God. And who everyone would happily consign to hell. And it has transformed them. Saved them. King Manasseh... ...in the Old Testament... ...sacrificed his own children... He was saved by the redemptive blood of Christ. King, um, legion, think of him in the, the Gospels—a man filled with a, a thousand demons—saved. Saul, the chief of sinners, saved. When Christ has finished with them, they will be unrecognisable. King Manasseh and Legion and the Apostle Paul will be there in this crowd, singing right at the front, at the top of their voices, saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive wisdom and honour and glory and power and blessing. And if Christ's death has the power to do that for them, it has the power to do that for you this morning. Who can turn your tears to joy? Too often as Christians, we take shortcuts to that answer, don't we? We think if we fiddle with the music or if we fiddle with um, uh, certain sort of things, external things, that 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 was what's going to generate our joy. And we try and recreate the scene in Revelation 5 directly by turning up the amp. John didn't need better tunes, did he? He didn't need a, a musician, he needed a redeemer. Only a redeemer can stop the tears. Don't take shortcuts. And if you're not a Christian, then uh, you're in verse 4. And i would ask you, why uh, wouldn't you trust the Lord Jesus Christ? Why stay in verse 4 in your tears, rather than receiving all that is offered to you here in the gospel? Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Let's pray.